0: Okay, Hebrews 9, we're on verse 13. And we have here a typical Jewish argument from lesser to greater. a if, if, uh, uh, lesser to greater or greater to the lesser it can work either way. That kind of argument goes something like this. If this lesser thing is true, let me give you one that is familiar. Jesus said, if not a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father in heaven knowing it, how much more... Does he care for you? The lesser thing, a sparrow, proves the greater thing a human being is cared for. So that's a Jewish argument you'll find all through the Bible. Here's one right here. For the, If the blood of bulls and goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself Without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the lesser thing is true. If the ceremonial cleansings that they had in the Old Testament that were uh, effective because of uh, the offering of the blood of animals, if that cleansed them so that they're outwardly ceremonially clean in order to be able to go into God's presence, how much more, how much greater will the blood of Christ so we have a greater blood, animals, Christ. we've got a greater sacrifice because his is once for all, His is effective, uh, not just temporarily but eternally. And we have um, uh, a greater effect. The greater effect is rather than the external person being made ceremonial clean, God cleans us from the inside. He actually, cleanses our conscience from dead works. So there's an internal cleansing. So the the greater is so much greater. So much greater because of the wonderful provision that's been given us through this once for all atonement that Christ provided when He died for sins. So, um, the blood of bulls and goats. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, this is a an allusion to the Day of Atonement. And they had they had uh, uh, goats and bulls both. see here. Um, Here I'm going to quote William Lane on this. Um, The ritual of the red heifer aptly illustrates the external nature of the cultic. Now, i told you this before, but some of you may not have been here. In technical theological writings, the term cult is not pejorative. It's it's a technical term for a religious group. So, cultic there means not like um, some weird cult group. It just means a group of people that has rituals that are prescribed for their uh, religious practice. So, here meaning just the Jewish one. So, it's not a bad word. Okay, so back to this. If you ever read Theology, you'll notice this. The original The Red Heifer aptly illustrates the external nature of the cultic provisions of the Old Covenant. It also demonstrates that a state of defilement is a hindrance to worship. By grouping the the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled ashes of a heifer, the writer implies that all of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were able to provide merely an external and symbolic removal of defilement. So it's external and it's symbolic. But it was nevertheless important because these were this was a covenant that God enacted with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai. It was a covenant with solemn provisions, and it was a and, and if these provisions were practiced in faith, in other words, if the people who were subject to the covenant they were um, willing to submit to the provisions of the covenant. And if they did these things in faith, we believe that they were also thereby saved. Not by works, but by faith. And that they were saved because of their faith in God, and that this faith was looking forward to the ultimate provision that would be provided. Because the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Messiah, goes all the way back into the very beginning of Genesis. I'm going to talk about this when I'm preaching in Genesis this morning, is that... Those people, like Abraham and Moses, who by faith trusted God, they were saved. They were saved, and they'll be with us in heaven. Um, not just because of the blood of the bulls and goats, because they had enough faith in God to be faithful to the covenant by His grace and to do the provisions. So that's uh, how we understand that. Let's uh, why don't we start right here with uh, Dean. Could you look up Leviticus 16, 14, and 15? And Brian, Psalm 51, 7. Okay, so that describes what the high priest would do. The, the goat, you see, the bull was for him, right? So first they sacrificed the bull. That was for the priest because he's a sinner. He took it inside went onto the mercy seat once a year. And then, he, then they took the, bull, the blood of the goat, it was for the people, and he went back and made atonement for the people. All right? So this is that's the background of this whole section of Hebrews, that this Day of Atonement ceremony that happened once a year is um, prophetic, in the sense that Christ is going to shed his blood once for all, and it will be brought to the heavenly mercy seat. Okay, and then Psalm fifty-one seven.
1: Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be and
0: David knew his need for cleansing. You're in Psalm fifty-one, right? Yeah. Doesn't he say something in there about the inward parts as well? It's somewhere in Psalm fifty-one. Yeah. What does it say? Yes. Okay, so I that Psalm fifty one shows that even under the old covenant they were conscious that they needed more than external cleansing. David knew he needed cleansing on the inward parts because he had sinned grievously against God, and the sin wasn't just external, but it was internal because of his um, lust. His he wanted he wanted Uriah the Hittite's wife. He had him murdered, literally. He made sure that he died. And the Bible portrays Uriah as a righteous guy who was very loyal to David. So this was a very grievous sin that David had committed. But Psalm 51, he realized that God, he needed cleansing. So he asked God for forgiveness and cleansing. Yep. He been a very interesting narrative. He was Confronted by Nathan the prophet, and uh, a good lesson in the story of David is that David's sin. If you look at objectively what David did, he sinned worse than Saul did. Saul Saul's sin that was that he was confronted about in one Samuel fifteen was that he had now waited for a priest to do an offering, and that he had taken the spoils of war when God told him not to. All right, and so. That that's bad but it's not bad as having a guy murdered and uh, David was guilty of of murder and he called it blood guiltiness in Psalm 51 so why was Saul cut off and David forgiven and restored what's the difference
1: He was repentant
0: Right Saul Saul would not repent He was confronted he said I didn't do anything He was confronted again he said the people did it He was confronted again and he says, finally, under direst, he says to Samuel, okay, I'll admit to you that I sin as long as you honor me in front of the people. Is that repenting? No. 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 So Saul was cut off. David was smitten to the heart by the Holy Spirit and he repented. So David was forgiven. Okay. Uh, on to verse 14. This is... A good verse for everybody to know. Make sure this one is (laughs) uh, well marked in your Bible so you know where to find it. Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The number of concepts in this verse is remarkable. You could preach a whole sermon out of this and Probably run out of time. Just think of the concepts. First of all, the idea of the blood of Christ. What does that signify? We've got to talk about that. It talks about the, through the eternal spirit. Talks about offered himself. It says that he's without blemish. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of cleansing? What is it, how is it that the conscience is cleansed? What were the dead works? And why is he called the living God? Is that enough to discuss? That uh, to keep us busy. Oh, and to serve. There we go. <laughs> There's one more idea in there. Okay, so let's start. Let's get roll up your sleeves. How much more? The first phrase, as I said earlier, shows that we have a lesser to greater argument, a very Hebraic way of looking at it. If the sacrifice the dean read about cleansed the flesh, and it worked that way, how much more will this Blood of Jesus cleans our conscience, so it's a much greater um, sacrifice. So that's the significance of how much more. Now, when it comes to the blood of Christ, I think that there's well, we know there is a lot of confusion about this, lots of confusion, and both amongst uh, ceremonialists, uh, sacerdotal, uh, sacerdotalists. Do you know who a sacerdotalist is? You don't know who a sac- <laughs> sacerdotalist is? Sacerdotalism is the idea that, that through a priestly function, it's basically Roman Catholicism, that through a priestly function you have efficacious uh, forgiveness and cleansing. In other words, you got to go to a priest to do a ceremony um, like the Mass, for you to find what you need. So that would be called sacerdotalism. right? Well, not, not particularly. It, it's more of the idea that this high holy ceremony that this guy does somehow is going to do something for you. you know? So you have this priest all in this garb doing these things, saying these things, going through this type of process. So that's that would be sacerdotalism. Well, then you also have the idea of this transubstantiation that's taught in church history. And some still believe that the, the way that you receive forgiveness of sins is through taking communion. And in the communion, the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. So they want this to be some metaphysical transformation in order for this to be effective. And that's what they mean by Uh, the blood of Jesus. Then you have people that take the word blood as if it were the utterance of the word were magical. And I ran into that when I was early early on in my Christian walk when I was in the Pentecostal church because there were some people in that tradition that looked at it that way. And they would do things like they wouldn't get in their car until they pleaded the blood over it. Um, I saw one house... Then we went to visit this, these people that we knew that were Christians, and they had these uh, mailbox reflector signs on the doorpost that said, blood, blood, blood. On, on the top and on each side, and mail mailbox sign, And their idea was that the demons wouldn't get into their house. Because those words, blood, were there. And, uh, have you ever heard of somebody like, I played the blood over? Have you, you ever heard that phrase? Well, that is sort of like taking the word blood and thinking it had magical abilities just through saying the word. Um, what else have I seen? I see people trying to get demons to go out by using the word blood. When um, I have quite an <laughs> interesting life, I'll tell you. I've seen everything.
1: <laughs>
0: but one time, these guys were casting demons out. I saw these guys—they were getting. Have you ever been in one of those meetings where the demons are manifesting and all this stuff? And I, yeah, you were wrong, weren't you, Scott? So these guys were going to cast the demons out of this, this person, and, and, and they'd say, come out of him, you foul spirit, and the person goes, ah, no, I ain't coming out. So they got him down on the ground, and, and they were yelling at him, and they said, okay, demons, you're coming out. Open your eyes. And the guy would go like this, so they pried his eyes open. Come out, you demon. Oh, no, he's coming out. And then they'd say the blood. And when they said the blood, then the, then the, the demon or person, whatever it was, to make sure the two went nuts. Ah! So they thought, wow, that's getting a reaction. That's working. So they go, the blood, the blood, the blood. And this guy's going nuts. So that's how uh, you get straightened out.
1: <laughs> I don't
0: know. <laughs> Yeah, that church still goes on. There was a church in Illinois that was doing that. That's their whole service every Sunday. They did it. There was a TV uh, expose on that, and they showed this on TV, where these every service, these demons start manifesting, and that's what the whole service would turn into. Um, I don't know how many different things. All Here's the bottom line. All of those are false. All of those ideas are false. The blood signifies a laid-down life. And the only literal blood was the blood that literally was shed on Calvary, Christ. And the significance of it was a laid-down life. The life is in the blood. So, Jesus laid down His life as an atoning sacrifice for sins. And the blood was shed once for all. So, the, the term blood is its not a magical word. You don't receive... Literally the blood of Jesus when you receive communion. I don't. I don't believe that. I think that's uh, that's strong in church history, but it is not def- defensible biblically, in my opinion. Well, I, they don't understand the, the Bible, and I know they're sincere because I re- read people that I respect who believe that. Yes. I. I. I think
1: it's.
0: Yeah, and I wrote about that. and a certain. I've got a couple of Catholic nemesis that are always monitoring everything I do, and then they send an email if they think I got something wrong. And and, and and this guy emails me and said, we don't believe that. So, But I don't know. They keep saying they don't believe that, but millions and millions of Catholics do believe that, so I don't know what's the real truth. Ryan right? and then Dean. I think if we look at this context of blood, uh,
1: it totally any anything that would continue because the whole issue in Hebrews that we get to is the things that would have been in the historical context is the blood they go back okay the the old, old testament sacrifice is including over and over again also the blood of the lamb over the over the uh, door in um, in the Passover but what happened with Christ was this blood was shed once for all. So that is blood. It's shed once and for all. Amen. Hebrews being very clear here. There is no continuation of blood sacrifice. I know. So it may against the uh, continuation of any type of shed of
0: blood because the blood is shed once and for all. Anything more uh, is according to the book of Hebrews. What do you call it? It's It's, it's once for all. And, um, so, so don't, in Catholicism, don't you have priests doing a sacrifice, or at least representing a sacrifice? That's, that's how I always understood it. But then now, some of the evangelical versions of people that, within Rome, will come and say, no, we don't believe that, so I, I don't know what the truth is. Dean?
1: In the very same verse, they focus, that's also part of scripture.
0: Right. Well, you, well, actually, another one that's interesting is it says, this, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay? And so, the, the significance of the blood there is the new covenant. Yeah, it's obviously
1: symbolic.
0: Well, that's all, yeah, I know. Tied into what Ryan just said, there's no argument. I agree. And not to mention, the other thing that I wrote in this article on Means of Grace is that the, the whole idea of the Jewish Passover, was the communion is based on Jewish Passover. All right? And so, that if you don't understand the significance of the Passover, if you haven't been, some of you are new, I've got to do a little advertisement for something, you need to go to the biblical dinner this spring, or whatever we call it now, Passover, all right, Carl, Rabbi Carl, well, he's not really a rabbi, (laughs) but Carl, we do a recreation of the Last Supper, all right, And Carl knows this stuff. He is so good at it. And when he walks through this and he shows the prophetic significance of everything that happened at a Passover meal and how it's fulfilled in Christ, it's a very educational thing. And if you understand those cups that they had there, you can understand communion. This high holy church sacerdotal, that's all coming out of church history. It doesn't come from scriptures, i tell you. No, as a matter of fact, I think it becomes more significant when we truly understand it, not less. I totally believe that. In fact, it's mentioned again in the Book of Revelation, and Ryan wrote a book called Eternal Stars. This, eternal Stars. This is an eternal. This is something that's eternal. that is this so significant that even after it's all said and done, and there's no more sin, and no more need for sacrifice, and all the redeemed are gathered together to be with the Lord forever. That even then, we'll still be contemplating its significance.
1: Yeah, and that's just exactly what you know. When Jesus raised from the dead, the star is made. going to be like that forever to remind us that this one for all sacrifice has mm-hmm. uh, eternal power. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you look at even in this verse that we're looking at, Hebrews, we have the blood that is able to cleanse us and enable us to serve. So the blood isn't just something that covers up our sins. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, obviously covers our sins and to forgives us, but also the transaction wasn't just to forgive us, it was to give us Christ's righteousness, Amen. So that we can live eternally in, in His righteousness. So the, the blood enables us to serve also. Not only does it cover us, it enables us to serve. A yeah. lot we, we think of it just as something that forgive us, it does that. But we also receive Christ's righteousness through that, and that's eternal. So it
0: Amen. And, and not only that, I, th- I just thought of another significance of it that we should discuss because the people that thought they were going to get the demons to go by yelling the word blood at them, they based that on this passage in Revelation where it says they, they overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, and they loved out their life unto death. What's the significance of the blood atonement vis-à-vis Satan and demons? Well, we learn that from Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, it says that when Christ died on the cross, He nailed the, the, the decrees against us to the tree, all right, and disarmed the principalities and powers. The power that Satan had over us was, was basically our own guilt before God. The way Satan can accuse us is the fact that we are sinners. And and, and Satan can go before God and say, these people are sinful, and you're a holy God, you're a just God, and you cannot lie, so you've got to judge them. And what are you going to do about it? Well, how are you going to get away from that? How are you going to escape Satan's accusations? Through the blood of the Lamb. The the blood paid the penalty for our sins, so now the the accuser is silenced. And, And the principalities and powers are disarmed. The power the sting of sin is death and and so and and, the, and that's based on the having broken god's law so their the significance is is huge and multifaceted and it's one that um I think they say in in the revelation, are they saying that thou hast purchased? Oh, I have a verse in revelation here, maybe that was it, but anyhow. Uh, this is going to be something that's sung about in heaven. So, yes, it's very significant. And I think that these other, the sacerdotalism, the, the transubstantiation, the pleading the blood as if the, the word blood was an was amulet to, to scare away demons, all of that does nothing but lessen the powerful impact of the true teaching, in my opinion and detract from well, what we should be learning and what we should know. That's that's how I understand that. So how much more will the blood of Christ, now what blood, the blood that was shed once for all. But through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. Um, the significance here is the the unity, The the we have a Trinitarian verse here, we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have God. Okay, So we have a Trinitarian understanding that in essence Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in essence, three in person. This doctrine is very important, although people don't seem to care about it anymore. We've got popular speakers that deny this like T.D. Jakes. Um, one of the local evangelical churches here had this what was What's the um, Jesus only singing group that's popular? Oh, Philip, Craig, and Dean. Yeah, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. They they were performing in one of the biggest um, evangelical churches, and there was a dispute about it. And so some of the different people that are in apologetics ministry were finding out that these people are not Trinitarian. Well, then they just waffle on it and say, well, we believe this, but not that. And they try to get their way out of it. Because they say it's not important. See, how come Trinitarianism isn't important anymore? Uh, something seriously amiss. Is that there isn't any doctrine important enough that, that, that people will care about it. But here we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in this process of bringing our atonement, and bringing eternal salvation. The Holy Spirit is, is, is always with Messiah. Messiah, the word Christ means anointed one. He's anointed to the Holy Spirit. People are, there's been heresies that's that's been around since the very early church. There was this heresy that said that Jesus became the Christ when he received the Holy Spirit at his baptism. what, What was that one? What was the name of that? You know, I forgot my Christological heresies. There's like, when I took systematic theology, there's like 10 or 12 of those you need to learn Arianism. Monophysitism. Um, I, I, I can't remember the name of the one that says that Christ became the Christ at his baptism. The Jehovah's Witnesses, don't they teach that? Uh, anyhow, I'll have to get my systematic theology out. You know, 10 years ago I knew that. <laughs>
1: <won't hold> <laughs> Did anybody relate to this? <laughs> <laughs> I think I even got
0: an A on the test. I don't know. I think so. I just got my driver's license renewed every four years. You know, this was really this was really a sad day yesterday. (laughs) I got my new driver's license, and of course you have to cut up your old. And I took the two pictures to compare. Four years, yikes! (laughs) (laughs) Four years are tough on a guy. Nobody else knows it either, so you can't tell me. Anyhow, the fact is that it is important. These are significant, necessary, important doctrines. The Holy Spirit never left Jesus. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is the Anointed One. The the three persons of the Trinity are always one in essence. I heard Benny Hinn teach this. I have the videotape where he teaches it. Benny Hinn said that when Jesus Christ died the Holy Spirit left him and he went into hell as a mortal man no different than Adam was in the garden. And as a mortal man without the Holy Spirit, he had to fight with Satan to see who was going to win. And, Hinn says, had the Holy Spirit not come back, Jesus would still be in hell. Now, is that blasphemy? I have it on a videotape. What's that? that Well, well, what it shows is he doesn't even know what the doctrine of God is. When people teach that Jesus lost his deity when he died on the cross, they have a deficient doctrine of God. The doctrine of God, the definition of of God that any Christian theist would have to believe as just non-negotiable is that God... God's nature is eternal and non-contingent. Now, let me explain that. It's a big word, but you've got to know this, because otherwise the Benny Hens of the world would have a chance to fool you. If people knew their theology, there wouldn't be anybody at a Benny Hinn meeting. Do you believe that? Where's Dan when we need a amen? <laughs> uh, because if you haven't been here for Thunder Dan, we call him Thunder Dan. He sits right here. And uh, because eternal non-contingent means this. God always is, always has been, always will be. Non-contingent means that God doesn't re- depend on anything outside of Himself for His being. A contingency means you, something is dependent on. All of us are contingent. If God did not speak the universe into existence, the universe would not exist. So the universe is contingent. Angels are contingent. They depend on God or they wouldn't exist. In fact, it says he holds everything together with the word of his power. So all created beings are contingent on something outside of himself for existence, that being God. So, therefore, when Benny Hinn taught that Jesus lost his deity, the Holy Spirit left him, and he would still be a man in the grave if the Holy Spirit didn't come back, he is denying the deity of Christ. Because if Christ has deity, then he always had it and he can never lose it. And he can't gain it, he can't lose it. Otherwise, he never had it. Ryan? Well, I don't know if anybody here one. God gives over
1: so there's three signs
0: for us to see that yeah. Right. We, we need to practice discernment. And another one that I've pointed out many times is this. is if anyone says to you, here is the anointed one, literally in the Greek, here's the anointed one, don't listen to them. Well, we've got our marching orders. Don't listen to them. So why do they sell so many millions of books? Well, people do listen to them. That's why. Okay, so back to this. The Holy Spirit did not leave Jesus ever. There's no such doctrine. That's false. So, when He offered Himself, it was through the Spirit, without blemish, who was He offered? No, what? Who was offered Jesus Himself? So He offers Himself. In other words, He said in John, "No one takes My life from Me; I lay it down." At least that got into the Passion of the Christ. That one was that one was in there in the the movie, by the way, um, that I didn't particularly care for. But I was glad they had that in there. Um, Without blemish. It's important that we know that Jesus was sinless. That is necessary understanding. Because if Jesus was sinful, then he couldn't do any more than these other high priests. He would be no more efficacious than, than all the high priests that had to offer for their own sins. And he, he wouldn't have made a, a, a substitute for us, a suitable substitute, had he been sinful. So he was a sinless, perfect, the lamb the ultimate lamb without blemish. So when it says without blemish, it's reminding us of the requirements of the lamb that would be offered in the Old Testament. So that's terminology right out of the Old Testament. Only Jesus, when when John saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. He announced him as the Lamb of God, and then later when Jesus dies, obviously he's he's pouring out his blood as the only one who is truly, ultimately, completely without blemish, being God incarnate, offered to God to satisfy God's demand for justice. God demands justice. Satan knows that. That's why spiritual warfare is about understanding this. The, the, when they overcame the accuser through the blood of the Lamb, it was because justice had been served. Justice had been served. So, the, his uh, death is accounted to us for righteousness if we, by faith, appropriate that and come to Him on His terms. That's what the Gospel's about. So He offered Himself without blemish to God for, now, to do what? To cleanse our conscience. Interesting word, conscience. We know that every human being was born with a conscience. According to Romans 2, our conscience accuses us. Some people misunderstand Romans 2 and they think it means. That if you follow your conscience, you can be saved that way? No. That's false. No, not, that's not true. What, is, what, what Romans 2 is doing is asserting universal human guilt. And it's saying this if you're a Gentile and you never heard about the law of God, you lived in some distant land where they had no Bible, and you didn't know the Old Testament, but you didn't know anything about God's revealed will, you would still be a guilty sinner. Because you have a conscience and you sinned against that. And in all the Romans too, it's pointing out that we can see that when you look at the written legal codes, even as going back into the ancient Near East, they had other legal codes besides the law of Moses. Almost all of them include things that are very similar to what we have in the Ten Commandments. How many legal codes don't forbid stealing? Almost all of them do. So it reflects from the human conscience that we know the stealing is wrong and it gets written down so that everybody's accountable to God. You can't get off saying, I didn't know any better. But this guilty conscience that knows that we're sinners and which is awakened even stronger by the preaching of the law, which we need, we should preach the law, is cleansed by the blood of Jesus from the inside out. So that we're, when David cried out to God, "Purify me, make me know truth in the inward parts," thus signifying that even under the old covenant, they understood they needed an inward cleansing. This is all provided for us through the blood atonement. Now we're cleansed from dead works. Now notice the um, uh, play on words here: dead works to serve the living God in the Old Testament. The prophets chided the people for worshiping dead idols. So when you talk about the living God, it's in contrast to every other God that anybody ever dreamed of. They're dead. They can't do anything. Remember, uh, Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal when they were cutting themselves and screaming trying to get their gods to, to come to their, uh, no, I guess your God's too busy today, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep, keep yelling louder. Maybe they'll, they'll hear you eventually. They're making fun of the fact because their God was dead. They're never going to be able to be heard. These are just pagan. But so the works are dead works or works that are going to take us to hell. And they're anything short of the righteousness of Christ. And the living God is the one who, who uh, we serve and we love and we know who we shall meet and uh, forever be with. Wow, that's a lot of verse, isn't it? Man, we haven't got to the cross references. I've got a lot of good cross references. Um Camp you you got a Bible there? Why don't you look up one Peter one twenty two? Is it Aaron? No. Adam. Adam? Alright. See I got the first I got the first vowel right. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. And then Denise, Acts ten thirty eight, Judith, Romans one and verse four, Daniel, Romans six twenty two, Romans six twenty two, Leif, two Corinthians five twenty one, Tyler, Ephesians two five, Denny, one Thessalonians one nine. Um, Kathy, Titus 2.14, Lois, Hebrews 10.22. I doubt we'll have time to get past that. I even have more, but let's do that much first. Lots of good cross-references. Okay, uh, Camp 1 Peter one twenty two. It says purified yourselves through what? Obedience to the truth, was it?
1: Since you have purified your souls
0: you you That's it. That you yeah. So when, when we obey the truth, now here it's talking about believing the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1 that he, he, his apostolic ministry is about bringing about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. The Bible asserts that the gospel is something to be obeyed. In other words, God is declaring that all everywhere should repent. It says in Acts. So, if someone does believe the gospel, repents and believes the gospel, that is considered an act of obedience, although it's certainly receiving a free gift by faith. And So, what that verse that Camp read is saying is that those who have thus obeyed the gospel by believing it, their souls are purified. Alright? Isaiah 57.15 Yes. Um, I think that's probably the best verse in the Bible about God's transcendence and his imminence. Those are theological words. Transcendence means God is beyond us. He's not of this order. He's he's exalted, high above sinners. Imminence means that God is near and close. If you emphasize one at the expense of the other, you end up with false doctrine either way. If, if you just say immanence, you end up with pantheism, polytheism, paganism, new age. If you have nothing but transcendence, you end up with deism. God's not involved with us at all. He's just sort of wound up the universe and then left it go. Um, but both are true. So that verse says that God is high and exalted and highly lifted up and also near to the contrite apart, He hears as he cares. All right. Um, Acts 10.38. He went about healing all who are oppressed of the devil. Amen. Romans 1.4. I mean, he just cited that one. Who was declared the Son of God with power by
1: the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of the
0: Holy <clears throat> Okay, that's the... the who was declared... Um, what was it? The Son of God with power? With power, yes. Yeah, through the resurrection. Romans 6.22. But now
1: having been... In
0: sanctification, in sanctification, the outcome, in yeah, so that's that's the same idea. It's just cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That now we've been freed from our slavery to sin. It doesn't mean we're sinless, but it, is, it means that sin doesn't rule over us. All right, and one day we'll be cleansed from the presence of sin. Two Corinthians five twenty one. Yes, um, he became sin on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So that's imputed righteousness. Imputed means it's put into our account legally. It's a legal idea. Legally, we have the righteousness of Christ by faith because of what he did. Are we still sinful? Yes. One day we won't be. Uh, Ephesians 2.5 He made us alive even when we were dead. That's why we believe in sovereign grace. A dead person can't revive himself. God has to do it. Somebody said, no more so than Lazarus could have called himself out of the grave. And that's a good analogy of regeneration. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, that's how you hear the call. Somebody preached the gospel and you heard the Lord say, come forth in the light. Even Wesley had that in his hymn. Um, what is that hymn that we sing sometimes at Communion? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. He's, but there's a isn't there a light in there where it says the light came into the dungeon? Yeah, light came into the dungeon and I came forth. So the light of the gospel comes into the dungeon and we come forth. And I remember one time we were singing that during communion and one of our members was coming up and uh, said to me as I was doing the communion, he says, what was Wesley thinking? He wrote he, he wrote that hymn like he was reformed. <laughs> what was Wesley thinking when he wrote that hymn? <laughs> Wesley really wasn't that bad if you read his stuff. I quoted him on means of grace uh, he had some good stuff. I, I think his followers are kind of got off track though. Uh One Thessalonians one nine. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we
1: had with you, and how you turned you God from idols to serving living and true God. Yeah, there's that same idea of serving the living God. You
0: turn from idols. The word "turned" means to repent, and it has to do with conversion. So they were converted turn from idols to serve the living God. Uh, Titus 2:14 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from
1: this, and a pure himself, he
0: people, those who yeah he purified for himself a peculiar people somebody said that's the King James. Um, somebody says, well that's absolutely true. we are a peculiar people. Uh, the king, um, what it meant there was unique and in, in a good way. Right? We use the term peculiar, different than they did 300 years ago. But peculiar to us means odd. Although I guess we are odd to the world, aren't we? As far as they're concerned, they can't understand why we'd be wasting our time being religious. Okay, uh, Hebrews ten twenty two.
1: Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with
0: pure water. Let us draw near. Amen. Draw near to God with a pure heart. How can we do that? How can it be? Only through the blood atonement can we come near to God. By the way, that makes me think about uh, I'm, I'm doing some edit. I don't know if i call it editing, but I've been asked to write the foreword to Brian Flynn's new book that's going to be coming out in February. And I've read They've, they've got it laid out, like I said, going to the book, but then I'm reading it, okay, and I'm writing and finding typos and problems that I'm reading. I'm 150 pages in. I have to tell you, that book is excellent. It's a winner. It's a fantastic book. Unbelievable. I hope somehow it gets distributed so people read that book. His compelling testimony, and then how he was saved out of the New Age movement, and then came into the church and was shocked to find the same practices in the church that God saved him out of in the New Age movement. But one of the things he was writing about was this thing about people are doing these mystical techniques to try to draw near to God. And he said, what an insult to God when God provided perfect communion with him through these means. He mentioned Hebrews. And then we're dissatisfied with what God's done and we come up with some pagan practice thinking we draw near to God that way. Um, I'm excited that this book is coming out. And uh, Lighthouse Trails, who did the Ray Youngen. I've um, I've had 150, there's 200 pages. When I get my changes sent back to Deb Dobrowski, and I don't know how many other readers there are, and I'm supposed to write a forward. What's going to happen is uh, they're going to publish this, and I think uh, I hope people read it. It's it's a compelling story. What's the name of it? Running against the wind. And uh, his testimony is amazing. Let me tell you a little funny story that's in the book. He was Catholic. He grew up Catholic. And his dad, well, he you heard him tell us just about how he decided his dad wasn't going to go to church anymore. But he, but he was in his Catholic school. And his dad wasn't really a Christian. But So Brian was going to the Catholic school, and the nuns were teaching. And he said to the nun one time, innocently asking, he was about nine years old, What was Jesus' middle name? And the nun says, Well, Jesus didn't have a middle name. Well, he must, because um, every time I hear my dad talk about Jesus, he says, Jesus H. Christ. Now, what's the (laughs) H? That's what he told the (laughs) nun. So she found out his dad was swearing. (laughs) That is, I thought it was pretty funny. So much for that. Anyhow, God bless you. We have fellowship time, and then church starts at 10:30. Today's sermon is from Genesis chapter 21, a very touching story about God saving Hagar and Ishmael out in the wilderness. God bless you.